0: The passage that we're going to be looking at this morning is Matthew 22, verses 1 to 14, and the title of this morning's message is The Parable of the Wedding Feast, The Parable of the Wedding Feast, one of my favorite parables from uh, the words of Jesus, and it's a joy to be able to preach this parable this morning. Matthew chapter 22, verses 1 to 14, and we'll begin by the simple reading of God's Word together. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he went, sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, tell those who have been invited, behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went their way. One to his own farm, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. But the king was enraged and sent his armies, and destroyed those murderers, and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. And those slaves went out into the streets, and gathered together all they found, both evil and good, and the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. But when the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. And he said to him, friend, how did you come in here without wedding clothes? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This has been called one of the most powerful and interesting of the parables of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this parable is a simple story. There's a king who wants to throw a wedding feast for his son. He invites a bunch of people. They don't want to come. He destroys them and he issues out another invitation. That's the basic story. Then there's sort of this weird little epilogue in the end about this guy who comes in without wedding clothes and how the king deals with him. But at the heart of it is this very simple story. What does this parable mean and how does it apply to our lives today? That's what we want to devote our time to looking at this morning. I want to look at this parable in three simple stages as it unfolds for us. First of all, we're going to look at the invitation in verses 1 to 3. Second, we're going to look at the rejection in verses 3b down to verse 7. And then we're going to look at... The re-invitation in verses 8 to 10. And once we're done with the parable, we'll take a look at the epilogue in verses 11 to 14. First of all, the invitation, starting in verse 1. And Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying... Now stop right there and let me just set the context for you and where Jesus is telling this parable. As Jesus is speaking these words, he is in the final week of his life and ministry here on earth. This is a week known as Passion Week. On Friday, he will die on the cross for our sins. On Sunday, he will rise again from the dead and triumph over sin and over death and over hell. Chronology has placed this account either on a Tuesday or a Wednesday. We are, as Jesus speaks these words, in the final week of his life here on earth. We are mere days away from the climactic events of his life and ministry, his death and His resurrection from the grave. For three years, Jesus Christ has been preaching the Word of God. For three years, He has been teaching. He has been ministering publicly. He has been healing. He has been performing miracles. He has been demonstrating His deity and the truth that He is the Messiah, the Son of God. And now, as He reaches the final week of His life and His ministry, all of the themes that have been woven throughout His ministry are now Reaching a devastating climax here in the final days of Christ's life here on earth. One of those themes that has been woven throughout Christ's life and ministry is the rejection of Israel, of his Messiahship, and God's judgment upon Israel because of their rejection. All the way through Matthew's Gospel, you see that Israel rejected their Messiah. That Jesus came in fulfillment of the Old Testament Scriptures. That Jesus came to be Israel's deliverer, to be Israel's redeemer, to be Israel's savior and Israel's king. And Israel, in response to seeing his glory and seeing his power, rejected him. Remember back in chapter 11, Jesus said that this generation was like a bunch of spoiled, stubborn children. They didn't want to receive the truth of God no matter in what packaging it was given to them. In chapter 12 already, we saw that the Pharisees were already conspiring to destroy him, that they attributed his works to the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. In chapter 13, Jesus began to speak in mysterious parables which were meant to conceal truth to the multitudes while revealing them to his disciples, in essence saying, you have rejected the truth of God, now there will be no more revelation for you. You are hard-hearted and stubborn, and you will receive no more truth. All of this has been woven throughout Matthew's Gospel, that Israel has rejected their Messiah, and God is judging Israel because of their rejection. Now, all of that in the final week of Christ's life and ministry is reaching this devastating climax In just a few days it will explode at the cross where they will nail him to a piece of wood and they will mock him as he dies. So great is their hatred for the Messiah who has come to deliver them. And in response to Israel's rejection of their Messiah, what Jesus does in chapter 21 and 22 is he tells a trilogy of parables. There is The parable of the two sons in chapter 21, verses 28 to 32. There is the parable of the landowner in chapter 21, verses 33 to 44. And then there is the parable of the wedding feast in chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. This is a trilogy of parables which illustrate God's judgment upon Israel for their hard-hearted rejection of their Messiah. And in this trilogy, Jesus says some shocking and mind-boggling things. For instance, in chapter 21, verse 31, Jesus says in the first parable, Truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and the harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. Oh, you Pharisees and scribes, you think you're so religious. You think you're so self-righteous. You think that you have so much to commend yourselves before God. I say to you that the worst of sinners, those you consider to be the most morally base and worthless, they will get into the kingdom before you. In chapter 21, verse 43, Jesus makes this mind-boggling statement. Therefore, I say to you, this is the second parable. The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Jesus says to Israel, the final week of his life and ministry. Israel, who has been the centerpiece of God's program and plan throughout all of the Old Testament, tracing their lineage all the way back to Abraham, their father who has been so central in the plan and program of God in the Old Testament all the way from Genesis to Malachi. Jesus says to Israel, Truly I say to you, the kingdom of God is going to be taken away from you. It's going to be given to a nation, an ethnos, a people producing the fruit of it. Israel, there's going to be a turning away from you in the plan and program of God because you have rejected Messiah. Messiah. This is unheard of. The period of the judges. Israel disobeyed God for generations and God did not cast them aside. The period of the kings. There were bad king upon bad king upon bad king. And Israel fell into apostasy and idolatry and God didn't cast them aside. But here, Israel has committed the ultimate sin. They have seen their deliverer and their Messiah. They have rejected Messiah. And so now Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is going to be taken away from you. It's going to be given to a people who's going to produce this fruit. There's going to be a turning away from the nation of Israel in the plan and program of God. Absolutely shocking. And now we come to the third parable. The parable of the wedding feast. And the main point of this parable, I'll just spell it out very clearly. The main point of this parable is that there is going to be a turning away from Israel. Those who have rejected God's initial invitation to the kingdom, that is the nation of Israel, they will be judged and there will now be a second invitation given to a second group of people. Whom we shall see as we look at this parable. So Jesus here, he's in the temple. He's speaking to the chief priests and scribes, the Pharisees. And he speaks to them in parables. Verse 2, he says, here's his parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. That is just amazing because, you know, this is the whole context is just judgment. And the whole context is wrath. And the whole context is condemnation and hard hearts and stubbornness. And then in this third parable, the third parable in the trilogy, all of a sudden comes this beautiful picture of grace. A wedding feast. A royal wedding feast. It's almost Disney-like. You know, the, the castle and the king. And the king's saying, let's have a party. Let's throw a great big party. I want to honor my son. And there's nice music playing. And it's just this beautiful picture of grace that it just explodes in verse 2. The kingdom of heaven. Maybe compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for a son. What you need to picture as you look at this parable is the greatest party you've ever been to. I mean, the DJ's playing the music. And you're booging along and there's great food and great catering and all you can eat and all your friends are there and they're all dressed nice and you're all partying, you're having a great time and, you're, and the guy's saying, you know, I got all this food, just eat more, eat more, stay all night. And the DJ's saying, I got more music, let's, let's just have a great time. It's a party. It's a great, glorious, grand, beautiful party. And this king's throwing it, saying let's have a wedding feast for my son. Now what you need to understand about Jewish Wedding feasts is that they knew how to do wedding feasts, all right? I, you know, let me just share with you just a little bit. me, Meen and I, some of you know this, we we love weddings. We have a great time at weddings. I mean, we're, we're kind of old and we don't get out much and and uh, it's hard to get babysitters. And so when we go to a wedding, it's like we get out there and we're like people play with our kids and... You know, there's good food and good music and everyone's dressed nice and everyone looks, you know, nice and we get to catch up with people and talk to people and there's like, you know, sometimes there's waiters bringing bread rolls and salad and meat and vegetables and then dessert and coffee and, and the best part, you know, my, our favorite weddings is when there's dancing, you know, there's afterwards the dance floor and, and again, you know, we don't get out much and, and uh, maybe sometimes we overdo it and you know if we ever if we ever do it you're free to rebuke me i'm i'm open to that but i mean we just you know i just think you know you know the bible says there's a time to dance and there's a time to weep and it's appropriate to be happy at a wedding i mean it's inappropriate to be sad at a wedding it's inappropriate to be happy at a funeral it's appropriate to be happy at a wedding because weddings are times of joy they're times of gladness and rejoicing and And let's live it up, let's have a good time. And we all understand that in our society. A wedding is a time for rejoicing. Well, let me tell you something about Jewish weddings. Our weddings, in comparison to Jewish weddings, are, they're weak sauce. A Jewish wedding lasted for, catch this, seven days. Seven days. You don't go to work. You don't have to get up and get dressed in your business clothes. You take a week vacation and you go and you feast. You eat. You just party. You put aside the daily grind of life. You just rejoice for seven days. You do this. Can you imagine going to a party like this? Man, I'd love that. I love if one of you threw a party, a wedding feast like that. Man, I'm there. I mean, seven days. You just. Spend time with your friends, and you just eat, and you just have a great time. Seven days of feasting and rejoicing, and fellowship, just having a good time. And back in Jewish society, Jewish society was, I mean, it was rough. I mean, you just worked, and you just, you just eked out an existence, and you just, I mean, it was hard living. And there wasn't much entertainment. There wasn't much fun. And to be able to take a whole week off and just party it up, man. The point is this, in verse 2, Jesus says, you know what my kingdom is like? You know what my rule is like? You know what it means to believe in me, to be saved, to be in my kingdom, to be under my rule, to, to enter into salvation? What is it like? Let me compare it to something. It is like the greatest party and the greatest event of joy and celebration that your society knows. That's what it means to be in my kingdom. And not only, people, is it a wedding feast, but would you notice, it's a royal wedding feast. I mean, there's wedding feasts, and then there's royal wedding feasts, aren't there? There's regular old... Joe Weddings, and then there's the king throwing a wedding. And when a king throws a wedding, it's a great wedding. It's going to be an awesome time. I mean, can you just imagine receiving an invitation like this? Can you just imagine if, like, President Bush sent you an invitation to the White House and said, take a week off? From work and just come and party and eat and rejoice and dance and man, would you be excited? This king's throwing a party. Some of you grew up in the 80s with me. I was surprised to find that I told the collegians, Do you remember the 80s? And they said, We weren't, damn, we weren't born in the 80s. And, <laughs> and uh, that's when I realized I was old. You missed out, Collegians. So the 80s were the greatest. <laughs> and some of you remember in the 80s, 1981, the wedding of Prince Charles to Princess Diana. It was called a glittering storybook wedding with all the royal trappings imaginable. Crowds of 600,000 people packed the streets of London. An estimated global TV audience of 750 million people watched on television. This was called the greatest uh, most popular program ever broadcast. The British actually enjoyed a national holiday to mark the occasion. Engagement picture showing the smiling couple and showing off Diana's ring which was an 18-carat sapphire surrounded by diamonds were splashed across everything from newspapers to coffee mugs. The couple were married at St. Paul's Cathedral before an invited congregation of 3,500 people. And this wedding was called the royal romance that enchanted the world. Man, what would you have done if you got an invitation to this wedding? I was in your mailbox one day. You come home from your regular old work or regular old school, and you open your mailbox. There's this big invitation It says, you, you. it's all expenses paid, private jet, limo to the airport. Week of feasting. All expenses paid. Even get to go shopping in London. You know, just live it up for a week. It's a royal wedding. Oh man, and Jesus says, My kingdom, you want to know what it means to believe in me? You want to know what it means to be in my kingdom? You don't want to know what it means to be saved, to be to be redeemed, to be under my rule? It is like the greatest party. Royal celebration feasting, joy, magnificent, lavish parties, ever imaginable. This is what it's like. This is my kingdom. And I'm so glad that Jesus said that. I mean, Jesus could have said, uh, the kingdom of heaven is like an office. (laughs) I mean, you know what it means to believe in me? You come in, you punch into work, and I give you a bunch of stuff to do, and you slave away all day, and that's what it means to believe in me. You know, Jesus could have said, the kingdom of heaven is like a jail. You know what it means to believe in me? You come and you've got to follow rules and regulations, and that's what it means to believe in me. bunch of rules, regulations, your life. You don't get to do what you want to do. You get—you have to do what I want you to do, and that's what it means to be in my kingdom. You know, Jesus doesn't say that. You want to know what it means to believe in me? You want to know what it means to be in my kingdom? It's a party, people. It's a great, grand, glorious, beautiful, awesome Royal celebration, and you're invited. Wow. Kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. Now look at verse 3. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast. Now note the phrasing here. It's very important. It's very specific. These people had past tense been invited in other words there was a preliminary invitation they had been given an invitation long time ago and now that the wedding was about to start they're being called and they're being told the wedding is starting it's time to begin and that's how it worked in ancient times they didn't have specific dates and times Uh, took a lot of work to get a wedding feast together and so they didn't have like this time where it's going to start at 11 o'clock on a Saturday morning, but it was like, you're invited to the wedding feast, and then there's this long period of time, and they don't know when the wedding feast is going to start, but then they get it all together, and so they send out messengers, and they say, now it's starting. So Jesus says, this king's throwing this great big party, he's already invited a group of people, and now that the party's about to begin, he invites them to come. And he says, it's starting. Why don't you come now? Now let me just pause here and let's just connect some dots in this parable. Who is the king in this parable? I think that's obvious. The king is God. Who is the son in this parable? I think that's obvious too. The son is the son of God who is Jesus. God is, the father is throwing this great big party for Jesus and he is inviting people to come. Here's the key interpretation. Who is the already invited ones? Who are those who have been given this preliminary invitation A long time ago, and now that the party is starting, they're invited to come. I believe in the context here, the already invited ones is the nation of Israel. They are the Jews. The Jews, in a sense, received their invitation all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, where they were set apart by God to be God's chosen nation, to be God's chosen people. They were set apart by the Mosaic law to be God's... uh, people who were to demonstrate his glory to the earth, they were, in a sense, given this invitation to the kingdom a long time ago. And now that Jesus has come, he went out and he proclaimed, the kingdom of God is at hand. John proclaimed the kingdom of God is at hand. The party's here. The wedding's starting. They've been given the invitation a long time ago, and now it's beginning. These people are the nation of Israel. Now, let me just ask a practical question. If you were given an invitation like this, would there be any reason not to go? Any reason not to go? Number one reason why you should go is you love the king. It's, king seems like a very gracious king. He's not calling them to put them in jail or to beat them. He's calling them to a feast. Second reason to go is because you love his son. Third reason to go is because you like free food. Fourth reason to go is you like a good party. Fifth reason to go is because you get a vacation. And sixth reason to go is because you don't want to get killed. Because if you insult a king in those days, he would chop off your head. So a lot of good reasons to go. Is there any reason not to go? Hmm. Actually, I don't, I don't, I don't like a good time. I don't like parties. I don't like food. I don't like people. I don't like... I don't like vacations. I'd rather just sit in my cubicle all day. I love my mouse. I love my I love my computer screen. I just love my computer screen. And I don't want to go. <sighs> Met some people like that in college, you know. It's like, "Come on, we're having a good time. Let's let's go party. You know, there's a party down the And they're like, you know, I just I just rather, you know, study my math or whatever." You like, "Come on, let's have a good time. It's time to do that later." Any reason not to go here? First thing we see in this parable is the invitation, verses 1 to 3. Second thing we're going to see in the parable is the rejection. The rejection, second half of verse 3. So the king comes, he has the party ready. It's going to be a great, grand, glorious party. He sends out slaves to call those who have been invited to the wedding feast. He tells them to come, the party's beginning and, verse 3b, They were unwilling to come. They were unwilling to come. They were unwilling to come. They didn't want to come. Are you kidding me? Why wouldn't you want to come? I don't want to come. You've been given the invitation a long time ago. Yeah, but I knew that, but I don't want to come. I think when Jesus told this parable, there probably would have been laughter. As at this point. What are you talking about? A king throws a party and you don't want to come? Are you crazy? Why wouldn't you want to come? They didn't want to come. How insulting is that to a king? Let me ask you a question. If you threw a party and you took all the trouble to get a location and to get a DJ and to get food and to get all the party streamers and and everything ready, you spent a lot of money and you called people to come and you say you called all the cornerstone to come. You say it's going to start and man, we're going to have a great time. It's going to be this wonderful time, so just come to the party and if we all said, nah, we don't want to come. And you're sitting there at home with this, all your party streamers and all your food and your DJ's there and he's like, no one's here to dance. And would you be insulted? Maybe a little bit, right? Maybe a lot. You'd be hurt. They didn't want to come. They were unwilling. So verse 4. Again, he sent out other slaves saying, Tell those who have been invited. Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fattened livestock are all butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Now, I believe that not only do we see that this king is a gracious king because he wants to throw a big party for people, but he's also a patient king. He's a long suffering king. He takes this insult. They're not willing to come. They're insulting to him. And what he does is instead of just sending out his armies to destroy them in verse four, he says, again, he calls them again. He issues an invitation. He's been insulted. He's been maligned. But he says, again, I'm going to call you. And he issues another invitation. He says, come, come. Everything is ready. And in verse four, he actually, I believe, stoops Down to this low, low level in appealing to their taste buds. He says, Look, look, my dinner's ready. My oxen, my fattened livestock, they're all butchered. Look at the meat. Look at the food. It's all ready. Come and eat. Don't you want to eat? Aren't you hungry? Look, if you're not going to come because you love me or because you love my son or because you have respect for my royal reign, then come because you're hungry. Just come and eat. It's good food. I prepared it. It's ready. Come. Everything's ready. Verse 5, but they paid no attention, went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. It's just inconceivable. Many people say, I'd rather go to work. would rather go to my office. Or i rather sit in my cubicle. I'd i click away all day. It's more fun. They went back to their business. This story is last week I was on spring break. day before spring break, I chaperoned a field trip with 50 junior high students. <laughs> field trip wasn't the hard part. The bus ride was the hard part. Got on this bus. there's another teacher in me. And the bus driver said, "Well, we need a teacher to sit back by the emergency exit, which is right in the middle of this massive." Junior hires, and they're all like, you know, ah, going all crazy. Field trip, field trip, ah, field trip. <laughs> and so I'm like, the other teacher says to me, I, I get motion sickness, and so I'm like, oh, okay, I'll go back. I go back, get out of the way. Yeah, I'm sitting there, okay, sit, sit down, and then seeing this mass of junior hires, okay, and they're on a field trip, so they're all hyper and crazy, and they're all like, the whole field trip, they're like asking all these, you know, questions, you know, just, you know, Mr. Na, are you married? Mr. Na, how long have you been married? Mr. Na, do you have kids? How old are your kids? Oh, Mr. Na, look, there's a Panda Express. Mr. Na, do you like chow mein? <laughs> it's like, oh, just, just, just stop. Where do you live? The bus drive was so on. And I got off that bus, and I was like, a week off. You know, you don't have to convince me to take a week off from work. Okay? You don't have to coerce me. You don't have to be like, come on, it's going to be good. No, I'm like, you get a week off. Yes, I'm there. Let's, all right. Let's go have a good time. Unbelievable, these people. How hard-hearted can you be? How insensitive can you be? I mean, the king's stooping down to this level, he's saying, Look at the meat. Come on, look at how good it is. Look at all this food I prepared for you. And they're like, I'd rather go to work. So they go to their farm, they go to their business, and then in verse six, the rest seized his slaves and mistreated them and killed them. Now this here the parable gets really ridiculous. The parable would make sense, if the king was trying to conscript them into an army. The parable would make sense if the king was levying new taxes, and they take their servants and kill them. The parable makes no sense if the king is trying to lavish them with blessing, if the king is trying to call them to a good time, if the king is trying to give them all this good food, and they take their servants and kill them. This is what Jesus says happens. There is a rejection of indifference in verse 5, and there's a rejection of hostility in verse 6. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying that these people, these originally invited people, these people who had received that first invitation, these are wicked, sinful, evil people. That's what he's saying. They are hard of heart, they are so wicked that they would actually react with hostility to a gracious invitation to come to a celebration. Unbelievable wickedness. And so verse 7 reads, But the king was enraged. And isn't he right to be enraged? Isn't he right to be angry? Isn't this righteous anger? Wouldn't we all say, That king, he's given them every chance. He's been so gracious, so patient, so loving, so kind. And they've responded with hostility and with indifference. He is right to be angry. The king was enraged. No more grace here. No more patience. No more long-suffering. People, this king, he's a gracious king. He's a patient king, but he's not a pushover. You push him too far, he will react in anger. So this king is enraged. And verse 7 says, he sent his armies and he destroyed those murderers. He just wiped them out. He set their city on fire. This is the rejection. Go back to connect to the dots. The king is God. The son is Jesus. The wedding party is the kingdom, is salvation, is coming to Christ, is believing in Christ. The original recipients of the invitation are, is the nation of Israel, is the Jews. The Jews had received this invitation a long time ago and now they were called. They said the kingdom is here and it's come, it has come, come, come to the wedding feast and they rejected it. Some were indifferent, some were hostile. So what Jesus is saying is that God is now going to judge you for your rejection. In 70 A.D., the Roman general Titus conquered the city of Jerusalem. He killed over a million Jews, threw their bodies over the wall, slaughtered countless thousands more throughout Palestine. The eyewitness historian Josephus described the burning of the temple in this way. He said, when the flame arose, a scream as poignant as a tragedy went up from the Jews. Now that the sanctuary was burning, neither pity for age nor respect for rank was shown. On the contrary, children and old people, lady and priests alike were massacred. The emperor ordered the entire city and sanctuary to be razed to the ground except only the highest towers in that part of the wall that enclosed the city on the West. There was a temporal aspect to God's judgment upon Israel in 70 AD when Jerusalem was destroyed. But that pales in comparison to the eternal aspect of God's judgment. Back in Matthew 11, God said, Jesus said, it's going to be more tolerable for evil cities like Sodom and Tyre and Sidon than for you, nation of Israel because of your hard-hearted rejection of the truth. So we looked at the invitation, verses 1 to 3. We saw the rejection, in verses 3 to 7. Let's look at the re-invitation, in verses 8 to 10. So the king has everything ready for the party. The food's ready. Everything's, we can picture it, everything's decorated, everything's ready to go, but there's no party guests. And the people who had received the original invitation to come to the party, they don't want to come. So what does the king do after he destroys that original number of people? Verse 8. Then he said to the slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Why weren't they worthy? Well, that didn't have anything to do with their morality. It had to do with the fact that they were unwilling to come. They were unworthy because they were unwilling They they just didn't want to come. So he says, those who were invited, they were not worthy. That first group of people who had received that invitation, they're not worthy of the party. They don't want to come. So verse 9. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find there, invite to the wedding feast. What he says to these slaves is that the first invitation, there was this original, this select group. In this story, it might have been senators, congressmen, religious, I mean, uh, artistic elite. I mean, you can imagine when a king throws a party, he has a select group of people, and he invites them. And he says, those people didn't want to come, so I destroyed them. Now, there's a re-invitation. And in the re-invitation, what the king says is, don't just invite another select group of people. Don't just find another bunch of congressmen, another bunch of senators, another bunch of artistic elitists. Go to the highways. Go to the common people. Go anywhere and everywhere and just invite anyone that wants to come. If they're a warm body, bring them. Anybody. The highways here would have described the forks in the road. The, in our days, it would have been the bus stations or the subway stations or the train stations. The people were common people just mill and gather together. And young and old, poor, poor and rich, educated, uneducated, anybody, short, tall, any race, just... If they're alive, bring them. I just want people to come to the party. The second invitation differs from the first invitation. The first invitation was given to a select group of people. The second invitation is universal and indiscriminate. It is given to common people. As many as you find. Anybody. Just bring them. I don't care. Verse 10, and those slaves went out into the streets and gathered together all they found, both evil and good. That evil and good refers in terms of human morality. I mean, we have like these human standards, these human standards of morality. We say, you know, well, that person's good because he's a good businessman. And he takes care of his family. All right, Jesus says, bring him. And That person's bad because he's a drug user or he's or, you know, that person um, is, a, is a prostitute or that person is in the dragon society or a thief or a liar or a cheater. Jesus says, bring him. Doesn't matter. They, if they're alive, if they're a person, I don't care. Common people, just bring them. Evil, good, anybody. Verse 10 says the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. This son's going to be honored. This party's going to go on. This celebration is going to happen. And if those original people don't want to come, then this king's going to invite another group of people to come. Connect the dots here. Who's the king? God. Who's the son? Jesus. Who's the original invitees to this party? The nation of Israel. Who's the second group of people that come to the party? This is the Gentile world. This is us. This is the time in which we live. What Jesus says here is there's going to be a turning away from Israel and the plan and program of God. There is going to be an era in which God's invitation to come to the party is going to be universal and indiscriminate. And anybody and everybody, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, it doesn't matter if you're young or old, doesn't matter if you're poor or rich, educated or uneducated, anybody can come in this era. Why? Because the people who originally were invited to come didn't want to come. So now, God just invites anybody. The Jews didn't want to come to the feast. So God says, he opens the floodgates out in this era, in the church era. And he just says, in this era, you know what the invitation is? Invitation is, it doesn't matter who you are. You can come to this feast. Go to the highways and the byways. Go find anybody and anybody, everybody who will come. And they'll come to the feast. That's the re invitation. The point of this parable that Jesus is telling the nation of Israel is that God is going to judge you for your hard-hearted rejection of the Messiah, and there's going to be a turning away from you in the plan and program of God, and now there's going to be an era in which Israel is no longer going to be the central focus of God's plan and program for the world, but that the floodgates are going to be open wide to the entire Gentile world, and there's going to be a new era with, and he's hinting at, a new instrument of God, which is going to be the central focus of God's plan and program for the world. And that instrument, we now know, is the church. And what is the church? The church is Jew and Gentile, predominantly Gentile, all coming together and joining in this grand and glorious feast and celebration. That's the parable. Now let's look at the epilogue. The epilogue, I'll call this the wedding crasher party crasher. Verse 11. So this invitation's gone out. All these people have come in. They've gone to the bus stations. They've gone to the train stations. They've gone to the common people. They just brought in all these people. You can imagine it. It's like this rabble, you know, you know, a bunch of people. And um, the idea here is, you know, the king's given them some some clothes to wear because this is a wedding. You've got to dress up for a wedding. And, you know, they're all like, kind of looking around. And some of them, they're not really used to wearing suits and ties and dresses. And it's just this big kind of messy Situation, but they're all there. It's just filled with wedding guests. Verse eleven. Here's the epilogue. When the king came in to look over the dinner guests, he saw there a man not dressed in wedding clothes. All right, who, what's this? This is this kind of this tacky guy. You know, he's he goes to this wedding, and you know when you go to a wedding, you gotta dress right. You know, I mean, you gotta man, we gotta put on a tie, or you gotta you gotta dress up. We all know that. This, it's just etiquette. It's just respect. It's just decency. You don't show up at a wedding with flip flops and you know, like a just some ratty old t shirt that says Hawaii on it and some you don't just show up and just you know, hey, I'm ready for a wedding. Your hair's all messed up. I mean you, you shower, you you comb your hair, you dress right, and you go to a wedding, and if you don't, it's very insulting, isn't it? My roommate in college, he he uh he had this uh, black tie wedding. I didn't, ever, I didn't know what a black tie wedding was before uh, my roommate gave one. And they told me, well, you've got to wear a tuxedo. It's black tie. And imagine like how insulting would it would have been if I go to this black tie wedding and I just kind of wear whatever and I just kind of show up and I'm just like, hey, you know, I want a party. Yeah, I heard there's a wedding going on. Let's have a good time. And then people would have been looking at me like, no, you've got to dress right. For the party. Otherwise, you, you're not respecting the party. This guy walks in and he has no wedding clothes. He has no suit. He has no tuxedo. He has no appropriate clothing. The king comes in. He looks over the dinner guest. He saw this guy sticks out. This guy's not dressed in wedding clothes. And he says in verse 12, Friend, how would you come in here without wedding clothes? I mean, how would you get in? You're not dressed right. And the man was speechless. That is, he had no excuse. The idea here is that the king provided wedding clothes for all these other people. They didn't have any reason not to be clothed right. But he just didn't want to dress right. And what kind of guy goes to a royal wedding and doesn't dress right? Well, first of all, this guy is, is rude. Secondly, he's thoughtless. It's just like goes to the palace and none of us will go to the White House and say, Hey, President Bush, I'm just in, in t-shirt and shorts. But this guy, would He's rude. He's thoughtless. He's disrespectful. And he has no excuse. And then Jesus speaks in verse 13 on very clear terms of what happened to this man. The king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You know what Jesus is saying in verse 13? He's trying to spell it out for us so that there's no misunderstanding. He's saying, you know what this guy is? This guy is going to hell. This guy is going to hell. Make no mistake about it. He was invited to the party, he's given the opportunity to join in the celebration. He was disrespectful, he was rude, he was insulting, and so he went to hell. Find him and put him out into the outer darkness. Verse 14, Jesus says, for many are called, but few are chosen. Many are given this universal and indiscriminate invitation to the feast, but few truly and genuinely accept it. Who is the wedding crasher? The wedding crasher is, in this context, a Gentile who tries to enter the kingdom without a repentant heart. The wedding crasher is a Gentile who tries to enter the kingdom without a repentant heart. He's received the invitation He's actually come so far as to come to the party so physically he's there. But in his life, there is no honoring, there is no respect, there is no decency, there is no honoring of the king for who he is. He mistakes the king's graciousness for weakness. He says, well, since the king is so gracious, I don't have to behave right, I don't have to dress right, I don't have to do anything right, I can just come and just disrespect the celebration. And the king shows his other side. He's not only gracious, long-suffering, but he's also just and holy. And he punishes sin. Verse 14 is a clear reference To God's sovereignty and salvation, few are chosen, that echoes the words of Paul, so that we come to the feast, we come to salvation because we have been chosen by God to do so. And so this is a reference to the sovereignty of God in salvation. So the Jews, they rejected the feast because they were indifferent and they were hostile What's the danger in the Gentile era? What's the danger in the church era? What's the danger in our era, in our church? Is that we give out this invitation to anybody and everybody and we say, the king's throwing a party, so come and rejoice and be a part of the celebration of the sun. And Gentiles come and they go, oh, this king's so gracious. And they just come and disrespect the party. They come and they don't repent of their sin. They don't repent of their greed. They don't repent of their immorality. They don't repent of their anger. They don't repent of their unforgiveness. They don't repent of their unethical financial dealings. They don't repent of their sin. They just come and they just bring their dirty lives and disrespect the celebration that's going on. And physically they're here. But spiritually they're unregenerate. And Jesus says, I say this with a broken heart. Jesus says, those Gentiles, he makes it as clear as possible. Verse 13, they are going to hell. Physically, they may be in your presence, and they may want to join in the celebration, but they are going to hell. That's the wedding crasher. You can see why this is one of my favorite parables in Jesus' words. So much encouragement, so much instruction, so much inspiration, and yet so much sobering, so much terrifying language of destruction and hell, and that you've got to be sober when you come to this feast. Let me end with some lessons and applications from what Jesus teaches us here. I'm going to make this real simple. None of these applications are going to have more than two words because I need things to be simple to apply them to my life and maybe you're like me. First lesson and application I believe that we have from this parable is worship God. Worship God. We see no less than four clear attributes of God put on display in this parable, and each are worthy of our rejoicing and our worship. The first attribute is the attribute of God's grace. God is the great king who invites people to come to celebrate in this lavish party that's Grace—that That is God's lavish and magnificent and wondrous grace to sinners that you can come and join in the celebration of the Son. The second clear attribute we see is God's long-suffering, His patience, His willingness to be insulted and wronged and maligned and yet still reach out again in love and in kindness to a disobedient and a wicked generation. In verse 4, this king in the story, again He cries out, again He calls out, again He reaches out and calls them to come to the wedding feast. So God is not only gracious, He is long-suffering. The third clear attribute we see is God's Wrath, his holy anger and indignation toward wicked sinners who disrespect his son. And we see that not only in how God dealt with the Jews in his judgment upon the nation of Israel, we see that in how he deals with unrepentant Gentiles who presumptuously seek to join in the wedding feast of his son, how he sends those people to hell. This is his wrath, this is his holy justice, his holy anger toward unrighteous, sinful, wicked, sinners. And fourth clear attribute we see in this passage is God's sovereignty, that God is sovereign in salvation. Verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen and you only come appropriately dressed to the feast if you have been sovereignly chosen by the king to have a regenerate heart. Those are four clear attributes that we see in this passage. And if I can add a Fifth, we also see the inter-Trinitarian love of God the Father toward God the Son in that the King is the Father and the Son is Jesus. And the God the Father wants to throw a great celebration in honor of Jesus and He loves the Son. And I so I believe we see in the unity of the Trinity the distinct persons of the Godhead loving each other and seeking to honor each other. My application to you this morning is worship God because He is a God of grace, patience, wrath, and sovereignty. And He is also a God who loves within the unity of the Trinity. If I can be really specific, you need something to get you through the week. Monday, meditate on God's grace and worship God for His grace. Tuesday, meditate on His long-suffering and worship him for his patience. Wednesday, meditate on God's wrath. Thursday, meditate on sovereignty and Friday, meditate on the truth that God the Father loves God the Son. All of those truths are worthy of worship and that'll get you through the week ready to come worship here again next Sunday. The first application is worship God. Second application, humble yourself. Humble yourself. I'm assuming this morning that I'm speaking, and most of you, I can tell, are Gentile. I don't know if there are any ethnic Jews in our midst. There may be, and, and God has special words for you if you are, but if you are a Gentile, if you are not ethnically, racially from the lineage of Abraham, you are Gentile, and God has a specific word for you, and that word is humble yourself. Humble yourself. Why should you humble yourself as a Gentile believer? You need to humble yourself because you realize that you are at a celebration that you were not originally invited to. The only reason why you and me as Gentile believers are even here celebrating the Son, Jesus Christ, is because the people who originally were invited to this feast didn't want to come. We weren't the ones who this feast was intended to for. We're just here because they didn't want to come and the king wanted people to come and join in the feast. If you are a Gentile believer, you have double reasons to be humble when it comes to salvation. You should be humble because you are a sinner who has no business being before a holy God and you should be humble because you are a Gentile who racially was excluded from the covenants of Israel. This isn't your feast. And it's not mine either. We're just here. Because those people didn't want to come. Remember the story of the Canaanite woman in Matthew chapter 15. She was Gentile. She came to Jesus and she asked Jesus for help. And Jesus didn't answer her. And he said, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And the Canaanite woman said, yes, I am She identified herself as a dog at a feast that's set for Jews. And she said, even the dogs can lift up the crumbs that fall from the table. I know I'm a Gentile. I know that this feast is set for Jews. I'm just a dog. I just want to lick up the crumbs that fall from the Jewish feast. That's all I'm worthy of. And Jesus honored her faith. If you're a Gentile, that's what you need to identify yourself as. You know what we are? We're just like these Gentile dogs. There's this great big feast set for the Jews. And all we're fit for is just, just give me a crumb and just let me lick up the dogs from the Jewish feast. And wonder of wonders of God's grace, God has granted us to actually sit at the table. To be a part of the feast. If you're a Gentile, you should humble yourself. Number three, invite others. Invite others. What's the call of this generation? What's the call of the Gentile era? Let's go to the highways and the byways and just anybody and everybody you see, just invite them to come. You know what evangelism is? Evangelism is just finding a warm body, just anybody. It doesn't matter if they're 5 years old or 50 years old or 90 years old. No matter what race they are, what education they are, it doesn't matter. Just They're alive, they're a warm body, and going to them is saying, God's throwing a great big party, want to come? You're invited. I know there's more, you've got to share more about the gospel to, to really share the gospel, but that's the tone of it. God's throwing this big party. You're invited. I can confess that when I've gone on evangelism, like on campuses, I'll see like this there's like these two guys and there's like this, uh, one guy is like this punk rocker. He's got this shirt on that says mega death and it's all black and he's got purple hair that goes down to his head. And he's, and he's smoking and then next to him there's like this, you know, nice clean cut Asian guy with glasses that kind of looks like me. And I'll always go to the Asian guy. <laughs> you know, I'll always, hey, you look like you need the gospel. It's our weakness. What God says, is, you know what, don't discriminate. Your call in the Gentile world is just invite everybody. They don't want to come, that's on their heads. Your job, just invite anybody you see. Don't discriminate. Number four, examine yourself. Examine yourself. I'll ask asked you the question this morning. Are you a wedding crasher? Are you physically here at the wedding, but you have sin in your life that you haven't repented of? Have you mistaken God's grace for weakness? Have you come and accepted the invitation of the gospel, but genuinely in your heart you're not saved, you're not regenerate, you haven't repented of sin, you haven't given your life to Jesus Christ, and so you're just coming and you're just defiling the party? My message to you is that God sees you, and God knows the true condition of your heart, and you need to repent, you need to put on the wedding clothes, you need to act appropriately in light of the holiness and the majesty of the king. 2 Corinthians thirteen five. Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. And number five, I mean, I believe this might be the most important application of all. Feast. Feast. What does the king want us to do? He's thrown this great big party. He's prepared all this food. What does he want us to do now that we're here? He wants us to feast. That's what the party's for. You need to come and you need to feast. You need to come hungry. You need to come and just immerse yourself in the blessings and the joys and the grace of the celebration of the sun. You come and you feast on the glory of God as revealed in scripture. You come and you feast on the doctrine of Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension. His second coming, you come and you feast on the wonders of your salvation, on the wonders of justification, of sanctification, of glorification, of an endless life in heaven. You come and you feast on the riches of God's word, on the wonders of his wisdom that's revealed in the pages of scripture. You come and feast on the power of the spirit who indwells you. You come and you feast and you feast and you feast and you eat. And when you eat and are satisfied, the king is glorified. What do I want you to do if you have come to my house and my wife prepares for you a really big meal? What do I want you to do? I want you to eat. I want you to eat and eat and I want you to eat some more. I want you to have seconds. I want you to have thirds. I want you to come and just go, oh, this is really good. Wow, man, this. I was so hungry when I came. And I want you after dinner to go to my living room and sit on the couch and pat your belly and go, I ate too much. It was so Good, and when you do that, I, as your host, am honored. I'm not honored if you come. You go, know, yeah. I just actually, I just ate. i <laughs> uh, a little bit not really hungry. here. Really. Uh, my wife's made this big meal for you. I'm just, I'm not hungry. I said a little. I'm on a diet. Just. No, there's no diets when you come to my house. You eat. You eat. What does God want us to do? Now that He's given to us this feast, He wants us to eat. He wants us to be full. He wants us to be satisfied. Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, oh, everyone who thirsts come to the waters and you who have no money come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money, without cost. Why do you spend money for what is not bread? Why do you spend your wages for what does not satisfy? Listen carefully to me. Eat what is good. Delight yourself in abundance. That's God's heart for us. Eat. Feast. Be satisfied. Let me wrap this up. Listen very carefully. I speak to you very personally, very specifically. Some of you have come in this morning And you have a wrong view of God's kingdom. All right? It's just the truth. You have a wrong view of what it means to be in Jesus' salvation. You see Jesus' kingdom as a jail. A bunch of rules and regulations that need to be followed that restrict your freedom. You see Jesus' salvation as an office. Just a bunch of list of things to do that you got to get done as drudgery. And I just got to go to work for Jesus. And what Jesus is saying to you is you need to repent. You need to repent of your wrong view of his kingdom because his kingdom is not a jail. His kingdom is not an office. His kingdom is a wedding feast. It's a party. It's a celebration. And you need to repent of your wrong view of God's kingdom. Secondly, some of you have come in this morning and you have a wrong view of the king. You have a wrong view of the king. You see the King as gracious and long-suffering, but you do not see Him as holy and righteous and sovereign. And so you have come to the feast, and you've come and you just bring your sin. You just bring your unholiness. You don't repent. And I'm not saying you have to live a perfect life. I'm not saying that you have attained to some perfection in the Christian life, because there is none. What I am saying is that when you come to the celebration, there needs to be a genuine, heartfelt, turning away from sin and sorrow over sin, and a commitment to walk and to pursue righteousness and that is dressing appropriately for the celebration some of you you have come to the celebration but you've just dragged in all your sin and all of your unholiness and all of your evil things that you've done and you haven't repented and what god is saying to you this morning is you need to repent of your sin and your wrong view of the king and you need to honor him as a holy king You need to repent of your unethical dealings with finances. You need to repent of your immoral thoughts. You need to repent of your lustful behavior. You need to repent of your ungodly relationships and the unholy relationships that you have been cultivating. You need to repent of your anger. You need to repent. It doesn't mean you always live perfectly, it does mean that you're sorry for your sin and you genuinely want to walk in the ways of God. Some of you have come in with a wrong view of the kingdom. Some of you have come in with a wrong view of the king. And some of you have come in with a wrong view of those who need to be invited to the kingdom. You've separated people into categories. Those are people who need the gospel, and those are people who don't. These are people who are going to be acceptable. Christians, these are people who are not. What Jesus is saying to you this morning is, you need to repent. You need to just see yourself as a Gentile. We're all just Gentiles. If they're a Gentile, they're invited to come. If they're alive and breathing, they're invited to come. And you need to share this gospel of grace indiscriminately with anyone who will listen and anyone who would come. What Jesus is saying to us is, you need to repent. But you don't need to repent for the sake of repentance. You need to repent for the sake of celebration. You need to repent so that you can properly and truly come feast at the table. Isn't that a gracious God and a gracious invitation? Let's bow in prayer together. Our Father, we thank you for you are a good, loving, sovereign, holy, awesome God who calls sinners to join in the celebration of your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we pray there would not be a single person who hears this message who would not repent for the sake of celebration and of joining in the feast of the King. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.